This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, for this very special episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, I welcome Elmaya Tailfeathers and Kathleen Hepburn to the studio. Maya and Kathleen each had a feature film in the 2017 Vancouver International Film Festival. Maya's was Sasnam, The City Before the City, which delved into the 9,000-year history of the GVRD. And Kathleen's was Never Steady, Never Still, a poignant drama about a woman wrestling with Parkinson's disease in northern BC. Two years later, and they've got another feature film in VIF. But this time... It is a creative collaboration that is leaving audiences breathless and deeply moved and inspired, all three of those things, all over the world. The film is The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, and it was written and directed by both of these remarkable storytellers. The film follows two Indigenous women who are strangers to each other, Rosie, portrayed by Violet Nelson, and Isla, portrayed by Maya, and the 100 minutes they spend together one rainy day in East Vancouver. Their story is told in real time, beautifully captured on 16mm film by Norm Lee, and it is at once intimate and infinite, a meditation on womanhood and motherhood and class and colonialism and how we can support each other across the vastness of individual traumas. The film had its world premiere at the Berlin International Film Festival, won an honorable mention for Best Canadian Feature Film at the venerable Toronto International Film Festival, and it was recently acquired by Array, the distribution company helmed by Eva DuVernay, yes, that Eva DuVernay, who took to Twitter to describe the film as a gem and described it as the most emotional film title she'd ever heard. Today's episode is all about that beautiful title. And the film, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. It's about honoring and sharing. It's about trauma without re-traumatizing and collaborating without losing your voice. And yes, we'll talk about Ava too. Elmaya Tailfeathers, Kathleen Hepburn, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you. That was quite the introduction. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad you like it. I mean, I know that there's so much. There is such a story that goes on that that has happened behind the scenes of this film. And I also remember when when both of your feature films premiered at at VIF a couple of years ago, and I spoke to both of you at that time about your films, and and here you are as as collaborators. <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk about then the spark that began this particular film journey then? When did it all begin? Um, so the, the, the film is inspired by an experience that I had um, in the East Vancouver neighborhood where both Kathleen and I live. Um, and I, very much like the film, um, I encountered a young indigenous woman who was pregnant and had just fled um, her partner who had assaulted her. 
Um, she was literally standing barefoot in the rain, cold Vancouver winter rain, and nobody was stopping for her. And I ended up taking her home with me. She didn't want to go to the police or the hospital um, and didn't have any friends or family to go to. And so that experience was was life-changing, um, just in the sense that, you know, we all have these um, collisions with strangers that, that really change everything. Yeah. Um, and so I, I carried that experience with me for a number of years. Um wanting to do something with it but um you know being very uh, careful about the ethics of of telling this kind of story on screen when you know the story belongs to uh both of us yeah. um i never saw the young woman again and i don't even know if she gave me her real name um and so i wanted to be able to honor her experience and so many women like her because it's a very common story um at, but to do so in a way that um, was ethical and also allowed for for creativity. So um, I've collaborated quite a few times before and just really love the experience of collaborating, especially with um, uh, other women. And Kathleen has been a friend for a number of years, and I've just always loved her work. If you haven't seen Never Steady, Never Still, Ugh. please go see that film. Yes. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I think it's one of the best Canadian films ever made. Um, and just knowing Kathleen's um, deep sensitivity and respect for Indigenous um, people and our experiences uh, and her own um, uh, sensitivity coming at it as a, as a settler Canadian, I knew that she would be someone who uh, would be wonderful to work with and so that's how I ended up approaching Kathleen about collaborating yeah so Kathleen talk talk I mean Maya had the opportunity to to sing your praises and so I want to hear you talk about <laughs> Maya as well and about kind of what what went on behind the scenes to bring this collaboration to the to the screen you know I'm, I'm and I'm very interested in hearing about the the concerns um that Maya raised as well as a settler Canadian you know telling these being part of telling the story. Mm -hmm. Well, um, as Maya said, she she came to myself and my partner Tyler with the idea. Uh, I guess it was two, three years ago now, um, and we just sat down and she told us that story from you know just from her perspective what had actually happened, um, and it was such a, it's such a moving and beautiful and complex story, um, and at the same time so contained and simple, and it just felt. Um, of course, this story needed to be told, and we would, you know, we were overjoyed and like very honored to be asked to be a part of this project, and knew that it was something that we could commit fully to with our whole hearts. Um, and to work with Maya was just such a, you know, unbelievable opportunity, and we were we were both just thrilled and honored to to do that. Um, and as a settler, I think I was just saying this morning we had a really wonderful panel talk. And I was saying, I think I came in with blinders on, sort of trying to, um, because I love the story so much, and I love the creative side of it, and it just was so exciting, I was sort of just diving headfirst into it and didn't really take the time at the at the start to reflect about my role as a settler in, in the relationship. But I think through, um, you know, working with Maya and making mistakes and growing from those mistakes and um, 
working in an environment which was so supportive and so loving and um, but also you know in a in a space where things we weren't just letting things slide you know if there was a situation that arose we we had to confront that and um, it was just it was a beautiful but very emotionally um, challenging experience but but so so rewarding when you sat down because you co-wrote this together uh, before even the process of production began did you have a discussion about the kind of film you didn't want to make we had a very experimental process um, and I think that largely had to do with um, not wanting to make a particular kind of film and to not do it in a particular way Um, there is so much toxicity in the film industry in terms of hierarchy and the way things are made um, and also just kind of this extractive form of filmmaking where stories are taken from communities and nothing is given back or that community isn't consulted with um, adequately or included in the process in any way. So from the very get-go we were very conscious of how we wanted to tell this story and um, so we had this beautifully uh, challenging experimental process of um, really figuring out how to work with community. Um, Both Kathleen and I, um, I guess, come from places of privilege in the sense that we, neither of us has been through foster care. Mm. Um, We are, you know, now women in our 30s who are so distant from, you know, that time of of being 18 or 19 and trying to figure the world out. and uh, and so we wanted to make sure that Indigenous youth and especially Indigenous uh, young Indigenous women um, who had been through care were part of the process in a very meaningful, collaborative way. Um, and so uh, the process in and of itself, I think, was also reflected on screen. You know, you almost don't see any men. They're there, but you don't really see them. Um, you don't see the violence because it's not it's not about the violence. It's yeah. about what happens after. Um, it's about these two women trying to work through um, what has just happened and how to move forward in that. And so, yeah, those were all um, very conscious decisions that were made throughout. Yeah. Um, you share the screen with Violet Nelson in the role of Rosie. Uh, what were you looking for when you were casting that particular role? And what did Violet bring I mean, obviously, she delivers a remarkable performance, but what kind of qualities do you think that she brought to the role? Well, we can definitely both speak to that. I think everybody (laughs) fell in love with Violet. Um, We went through the conventional casting channels, hired really lovely casting directors um, who brought us quite a few auditions from professional actors. Um, But we were looking for a certain quality. Um, I guess that really comes through lived experience. Um, and we're looking for a person who, you know, embodied Rosie to the fullest, which is this this young woman who hasn't been treated kindly in this world. Um, and we decided to open up the casting channels to an open casting call. So we hired uh, Robin Weaselbear, who also was our script supervisor. She's um, Blackfoot from the Begunny Nation. Uh, We hired her to be kind of like a community outreach um, casting person. So she went to uh, tons of different local organizations um, trying to get, you know, young indigenous women to send us audition tapes. And then we had this like um, online casting thing and we were just like so overwhelmed with the number of, of 
tapes that we received. Um, I guess they're not technically tapes, but people still call them. So. <laughs> we can call uh, it tapes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a throwback. <laughs> um, and it, that was pretty heartbreaking because there were so many talented young women who just were so brave in sending us their auditions, having never acted before. Um, and we fell in love with so many young women's auditions. Um, but when we saw Violet, we kind of just knew. Do you want to speak more to Violet? Yeah, I think what was so um, exciting about Violet was, I mean, she's she's just a natural empath. And that was, you could tell right from, you know, the first moment you meet her. But I think also in reading the script, I think a lot of people would read her character as this sort of, rambunctious teen who um, is really tough and and uh, speaks her mind but I think Violet is such she's so quiet and so she was reserved when we first met her now she's <laughs> but um, it sort of just flipped that character into something I think a lot more complex and unexpected and um, she she's so um, just I don't like to use the word wise because it feels cliched, but she it, like she's got this sort of understanding of of other people's emotions and their experiences, and she can just like put herself right in your shoes and be there with you. And it's just, yeah, she's was a beautiful she, person. Was she? Uh, did she? Had she acted before? No, this was her. She was in a music video where she does a little bit of rap. <laughs> As the kids I love say, it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what the kids say. <laughs> like, a couple of decades after being a kid, but okay. This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. I mean, in this role, you know, like I, I, there was a part of me that wanted to reach through the screen and I'm sure a lot of people see this and just want to be there and help. And you have this, this young woman who is in, you know, coming into the space to embody that role, you know, like what, were, were there, concer- what kind of concerns did you have? Or like, what kind of ways were you, like, what did you do to protect her, you know, from the material or I'm not sure if I'm being very clear, you know, in that question, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of hand gestures and I'm hoping that that's clear, you know, I mean, this, this is especially considering the heaviness of the material versus the fact that she had not performed be- before besides rapping, mm-hmm. you know, what was that like? Yeah, I think um, we were very aware of that uh, concern. It was a, it was a big consideration for us especially given the fact that she does um, 
have some lived experience that relates to the character. Um, so we were sort of trying to find our way as we went, but one thing that we did was uh, consulted a, a trauma counselor oh, okay. um, and got some tools from him on how to handle, because we were going to some very emotional places um, in our rehearsal period. So um, that was one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, uh, w- so the film was shot essentially as a, a one take. Um, it shot on 16 millimeter, and as we all know, a film mag only lasts like 11 minutes. Um, and so uh, we had all of these transition points throughout where uh, a camera would be pre-rolling and swapped in. Our DP calls it real-time transitions. Um, but anyway, uh, that process wasn't so much about the uh you know, accomplishing this like technical feat of doing a one take. It was, um, had more to do with our process as filmmakers and also wanting to support the performers, Violet and myself. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I started off in theater and I, I love theater. I love the fact that, um, performers have the opportunity to go through the entire narrative beginning to end, um, and build this like really beautiful energy if if you're lucky and also it builds like this um interesting relationship with the audience and in film um it's often shot all over the place when you're shooting a feature one day you'll be in the middle of the script and then the next day you're back at the beginning and i think for actors it can be a little bit disorienting um unless you've been doing it forever but with violet she'd never acted before and we wanted to um get the most sort of organic performance from her um, and felt that approaching it like theater might help. And yeah. so we did uh, four weeks, essentially, of rehearsal as though it was theater. Um, there's there's a real beauty in being able to explore every single moment. Um, and so Violet and I were off book when we went to camera um, and we got some really, we, d- we did it five times, the one take, wow. once, once a day over five days. And we got some really beautiful moments that just happen in, in the performers being able to experience it all in one go. Um, and so that decision was partially just to also to support Violet's performance. Um, and Violet's been really open about having, um, uh, you know, been able to relate to Rosie's story on a personal level in terms of what she experienced growing up. Um, And so, you know, we were very conscious about the fact that we could be putting her in in harm's way in terms of like, you know, having her sort of relive these experiences that are so familiar and also painful. Um, So like Kathleen said, we we kind of learned about trauma-informed care and got some tools under our belt for that. Um, And we also found a lovely elder from Violet's community. She's Kwakwakiwak from Kwatsino, I think, yeah. we found an, an elder named Ruth Alfred who is actually a relative of Violet's and she came uh, every day of production and she was there for Violet at the end of the day to kind of help her decompress and you know it's a very uh, emotionally challenging uh, film to perform in um, and then there were yeah I mean there were so many things we thought of along the way um, 
I guess through kind of like stumbling, you know what I mean? Um, you, That's where the magic happens. Yeah, yeah. You, like you don't know that you're doing it wrong until <laughs> you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and so we kind of, uh, the, I guess the beauty, I think, of our partnership as, as collaborators and also our producers um, was that everybody was willing to try things differently um, and build a new way of working and um, and there was kind of this like our I guess our guiding principle was like we wanted to work um, from like a community-based sort of working model um, and and root ourselves in community and and love and support for everyone involved in the project yeah and it worked it worked beautifully. Is Violet going to continue acting after this, do you think? Have you started something? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So after the production, um, Violet was able to get an agent who is really wonderful uh, working with her. And she's been in a few short projects. She was on The Twilight Zone. Very. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but she's also acting in a film with Maya this fall. Um, are you allowed to say what it is? I don't know. Okay. Announced, but yeah. we'll just say okay. Well, yeah. watch this space. Then we will <laughs> we will talk about it. Um, one of the one powerful and recurring image within the film uh, is like that we see is the blood on um, on Isla's sanitary pad, and I don't think I've ever seen one an IUD inserted on screen, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone putting a pad on on screen, um, let alone there being blood there. And I found it really like moving and haunting and like revolutionary, you know, like what what discussions did you have around including, you know, those particular images and moments? I mean, because frankly, we haven't even seen uh, blood um, in advertising, you know, the advertising of hygiene products. It's usually a blue liquid, right? And now we're starting to see that more, yeah. you know, so seeing it in the film, I was like, yes. I love that. It it mean it, it got me in my feels. So, what kind of discussions did you have around that, and why did you include it? Yeah, I think well, this film is so much about the body, um, sovereignty over women's bodies, Indigenous women's bodies, and motherhood, and the choices to be a mother or not to be a mother, and um, the right to motherhood. Mm. Um, and like you said, we haven't seen that on screen. As far, I've never seen that on screen. And, you know, I wish I had, because when I was a kid, I was like, I don't know how to do this stuff. Yeah. My mom wasn't one that was, like, teaching me. Yeah. <laughs> That's really um, yeah, I think we just were like, why shouldn't we show this? This is part of her experience, and we have to go through this, and people should accept that. And yeah. I don't know. Do you want Yeah. I think um, uh, we have to give Kathleen the credit for the IUD idea. <laughs> okay, um, but it uh, it's it's really interesting how um, audiences are so comfortable with uh, forms of violence on screen, um, and and you know seeing blood, uh, especially when it's in, you know this violence is inflicted on women. Um, it's like we're so desensitized to that, but there's like something so terrifying for some reason uh, for audiences when it comes to like literally menstrual blood. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just a thing. You it's know, amazing. it's not like a it 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 shouldn't have to be a political act to to show that on screen, but but it is. Yeah. And um, yeah, as Kathleen said, it, it, the film you know really looks at 
the issue of sovereignty of the body, especially with indigenous women's bodies, and um, I guess looking at the body as a political landscape as well. Um, and cinema has a long history of of um, politicizing women's bodies through the male gaze, mm. uh, especially like the white male gaze. And uh, it was really fantastic being part of a project that um, inadvertently maybe but also advertently uh looked at ways to dismantle um that really um messed up gaze yeah (laughs) i am here for it i mean because i've i mean i guess in a lot of ways i've internalized that male gaze you know and the fact that like i'm watching this and i was really i was shocked about it i'm like oh wait i'm shocked because i haven't seen that and why haven't i seen that As I said in my intro, it premiered in Germany, it's screened in Toronto, it's been racking up acclaim and reviews and is really moving people on a very deep level. As far as um, media and and reviews, like are, do you, how has the film been covered uh, and what kind of uh, questions you know, are they, like do you, do you think that they're covering it responsibly, especially, you know, given the the fact that it's also it's a very it's like also a hyper local story about people in a neighborhood, you know, in Vancouver as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we haven't actually had a ton of coverage so far, which has been interesting. Um, but we've had some really respectful interviews, some really wonderful interviews. Um, there was a journal uh, called Another Gaze, which did a really really thoughtful write up for us. Um, and really understood the complexity. And I think what I'm starting to notice is the difference between female writers and male writers Mm. (laughs) in how they talk about the film and what they choose to focus on. Um, So that's been really interesting. But I think it's really exciting to to show it in Vancouver because I think there's just that extra level of understanding here because the film is so much about East Vancouver and and women living here and the experiences they go go through every day. And you know, all the political complications and, and social and historical. And it's just such, there's so much rich richness to it. So I'm, exci- I'm, I'm excited to hear what writers are going to think of the film here. Yeah, when you were in Germany uh, and you screened the film there, like wh- what was the response from, from German audiences? You know, what kind of questions are, did they have about what is actually going on here in Vancouver? Well, um, it, we were very curious to see how German audiences would, would respond because, like you said, it's a hyper-local story and it's also specifically about Indigenous women in Vancouver. Um, what we came to understand is that it's such a universal story. Yes. So many people came up to us afterwards and said, "I, you know, this is my experience. I know this story. I know someone like this. And um, that was quite sad and overwhelming, but also um, left us with, I guess like a, a profound sense of of um, having accomplished something, which was that we wanted to be able to um, tell a story that resonated with audiences on a universal level. So we did that. There was, I mean, there was one guy who had a really weird. He, I think he thought it was like a documentary yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> he was very confused. He stood up and he was like, "Am I supposed to emphasize?" And I think he meant empathize. <laughs> and we were just like, "Oh, um, what?" Um, yeah. Sorry. Well, go ahead. Sorry. 
um, that just it also reminded me of we did have a very special uh, experience with one of um, our producer Tyler and and also my but uh, filmmaking heroes who was there in Berlin doing a retrospective of his work Kilat Tahimik. Um, and he, we had gone to his screening, and Tyler had invited him to come to our screening, and he came. Um, and he's an indigenous filmmaker from the Philippines, and he just said something really beautiful after the film, which was I can't remember the word in in Filipino and in Tagalog, but he said there's a word for the silence between strangers. Um, and that he felt that so much in the power of that silence in our film um, and he just he really loved the film and that was that was like so beautiful to hear from him from someone who's made you know he's been making films for decades and decades about indigenous stories and he's just um, yeah that was really special Ooh, got chills the silence between strangers. H- how do you think the experience of of making this film together, as you say, in a very experimental, collaborative way, will change you as storytellers, as filmmakers moving forward? Ooh, um, I think this this film was, uh, I yeah, like a master class on how hmm. to collaborate and really um, brought me to the understanding that you don't have to do things in a certain way, you know. Um, you you can you can create something um, in a way that that suits the need of the project and the content and the community you're working with. And um, it was really wonderful to build something altogether new in terms of process and how to work together. And um, it came so much from, I think, um, like I don't want to toot our own horns or whatever. Toot, that's what you're here for, come on. (laughs) But I think it came from uh, humility in the sense that, um, and this is probably something a lot of women experience, which is that there's kind of like a maybe self-doubt in a sense that like, oh, we don't know what we're doing, but embracing that of like, we don't know what we're doing, let's just like do it in whatever way suits our needs as the creatives on this and so we um we embraced the the gray area and just like worked from there no I would I would totally agree about that I think one thing that I've been thinking about ever since we finished is like how do we carry this forward into the next project because it's such a special experience such a unique experience um and I think the reason it worked was that all elements were sort of aligned in terms of um the why, you know, and everything sort of fit together in a way that made perfect sense for the project. And um, I've been like worrying in my head, like, oh, for my next film, how do I capture this sort of energy um, and bring it to the next project in a new way? Because it can't be the same. Like we can't, I don't think we can ever repeat this in the same way. So um, that's something to really think hard about for the next one. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about Ava DuVernay because I saw that and I I screamed. I mean, we're talking about one of the most incredible storytellers, filmmakers of our age, and and you know, imp- and lifting up your film, you know, and and you're only one, like the fourth of of 2019, right? That that her company is distributing. So. Come on, tell me, <laughs> tell me what it means to you that Ava is part of this. Tell, tell me, like, 
you know, uh, did you scream too? <laughs> uh, yeah, I cried. I cried uncontrollably. Um, so the 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 reason that she even saw the film to begin with um, was because of Bird Running Water, who has worked with the Sundance Institute for a very long time now. Actually, he's been with them for quite a while. Um, he is instrumental in. Um, building all of the Sundance uh, Native uh, fellowships. So I was fortunate enough to be awarded the Merita Mita Film Fellowship in 2018, and um, uh, they were just so supportive of our project. Um, But Bird has really been helping us in terms of, you know, in any way, like getting us support that we need because the American channels are very different from mm. from Canadian, and this was also a Canadian Norwegian co production. Um, so Bird, through all of his networks, um, managed to get the film in front of Ava DuVernay and Tulane Jones at Array, at Array, um, and that led us to where we're at now it was wow it's it's so (laughs) surreal it's incredible like we we had a a phone meeting with them and she was just like on fire like she and I think that's just how she operates all the time uh Kathleen and I just fangirled like the whole time I I couldn't even speak I could just like giggle (laughs) same with Kathleen I imagine that there are people all around her all the time who have that kind of you know and yet like what a I mean so just seems from I mean I just know her her work and following her on social media but so supportive like I just want to like I just want to make her happy you know and like make, make her cheer but you know so what is this mean then for the for the project so what is the what is the future then for for the film what is the, the relationship with array yeah so array has uh come on board for worldwide distribution outside of canada and norway um so they will be uh hopefully selling the film to other territories they, um they will be doing a sort of small re- i mean a small theatrical run semi-theatrical run in the states and they have all of these like um, networks that they've built up with with community members and organizations and their their mandate just aligns with the film in such a beautiful way you know they're really about getting getting the film out there in front of as many audience members as possible um, and yeah they I'm not sure how much detail we're allowed to go into <laughs> but that yeah it's just really exciting to hear the way that they strategize and the way they talk about um, marketing the film and to know like to feel so safe that they know the right way to to bring this film to the world. Do you see all like the hearts around me right now? I'm just <laughs> I'm so happy for you. One of the comments that uh, that Ava made on Twitter was that it was the most beautiful um, f- title of a film that uh, that she'd ever heard. And I was wondering if you could if you could talk to my listeners a little bit about what the title means and where it comes from. Sure. So the title, uh, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, is borrowed from an essay of the same name by uh, Billy Ray Belcourt. Um, Billy Ray is a phenomenally talented uh, Cree poet and scholar. Um, he, yeah, he's he's kind of a, a really significant voice uh, for the Indigenous community and the queer community. Um, so anyway, we, we really struggled with finding a title that, that embodied 
all of these things that we were thinking about as we wrote the script. And um, we came across this essay, and I think both of us just knew immediately, like, wow, that's an amazing title. Um, and I'm totally going to, uh, you know, uh, bastardize, I guess, <laughs> the essay, but it's uh, it's a response to uh, Tanya Lukin Linklater's uh, dance um uh, piece that uh, a video a, a video installment um, uh, called In Memoriam, and in the essay, Billy Ray Belcourt um, speaks about the ways that Indigenous bodies carry this history, this this legacy of uh, of colonialism. When the world broke open, it, it exists on a uh, you know cellular spiritual level, and um, we still have a long way to go. Um, I don't know if we're ever fully going to heal from what happened, but we continue forward. And it's also about the strength and beauty and the ways that we continue forward. And so um, it's about inheriting um, the strength of our ancestors as well as living with the, the reality that is colonialism and is uh, um, a, a sort of a form of daily violence that we experience, be it systemic or, or quite physical um and so it's kind of funny that um that Ava made that comment about the title because we were told so many times <laughs> by so many people who have stakes in the film financially that um the title was too long that we needed to change the title or shorten it but um Kathleen and I stuck to our uh stood our ground and we're like nope we're, we're keeping that title it has to be the whole thing because that is the full and complete um uh, spirit and intent of the film. Yeah, there's a lesson in that as well about just trusting your your gut, you know, and not handing over anything in that kind of way. I'd like to thank you both for joining me here today, and I wish you continued success. The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open screens at Viv Fan City Theatre from November 1st to the 14th. You can find screening times at www.vif.org and you can follow The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for news about the theatrical release and how to watch the film online. To our listeners, we say like and subscribe. Please leave us a review if you are so inclined. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Firminger, and it's produced and edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger, or Family Business, for technical support, and to Dane Develay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! <laughs>